In her second Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, J.K. Rowling wrote, It is our choices, Harry, that show what we truly are, far more than our abilities. If I were to insert this quote into the fourth chapter of the Epistle of St. James, you'd think it had always been there. James completely agrees. It's our choices that show us who we are. Our choice, as Christians, is either to be a friend of the world and an enemy to God, or to submit ourselves to God and resist the devil. The bottom line, only by humbling ourselves before God can we choose the way of life. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way. I'm Father Dustin, your host. And we are, as you know, continuing our exploration of the Epistle of St. James. We are now getting into chapter 4. So I think what we'll do is I'll read through this section that I want to talk about today, and that's chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. So I'll read through those 10 verses, and then I'll talk about the passage as a whole, because it is a unified whole. It has one idea. And then what I think I'll do is I'll go back and I'll pull out a few of the words and look at the way they were translated and look at what the original Greek is. And in that way, we'll dive deeper into what the passage is saying and what James is getting at. But I think it will help to start by reading the whole passage and having a conversation about what James is saying overall. That way, as we dig in, you don't get lost in these verses. So here's the section as a whole. Again, this is chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive. Because you ask wrongly, in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers! Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. That's our passage in whole, and I've been reading from the New Revised Standard Version. As always, I encourage you, if you're able, make sure you take a look at the original Greek or at other translations, because as we'll see as we start to dig into this passage, this translation is not always 
how should I put it, loyal to what the Greek is saying. The translators play with it just a little bit, and we'll see how that works out in a second. But I think the passage overall continues the theme that James has been talking about. There's two sorts of wisdoms. There's the wisdom of God, but then there's the wisdom of the world. Or if you want to think about it another way, there's two sort of ways of acting. You can act according to what God says is right, or you can act according to what the world says is right. And we've seen that play out before when James talks about honoring the poor. That would be the wisdom of God. But the wisdom of the world would say, honor the rich, because they're the ones with resources. They're the ones that can help you out. Or maybe in today's world, we could say, honor the rich because they could give you a job. And so there's a conflict between these two sorts of wisdoms, or these two sorts of ways of walking the way, living out your faith. And here James is trying to get at what the inner motivation might be. In our world, we talk about motivations coming from the heart. Or perhaps we talk about motivations coming from the mind. We make a decision in life. But you have to remember in the first century, and for James, just as it would have been for Paul or any of the other biblical authors, motivations aren't just a matter of individual decision, but often as a spiritual problem. That the ancient world believed there were spirits that were guiding you or pushing you, or motivating you. And so it isn't always necessarily, in their minds, a decision that an individual makes, but outside spiritual pressures acting on them. I don't know if the best way to think about this, perhaps, is our cartoon of someone trying to make a decision, and he has on each shoulder a spiritual being. On one shoulder he has the angel, who's whispering angelic advice into his ear, and on his other shoulder he has the devil whispering demonic advice into his ear, and he seems to always be caught between the two. Perhaps that's the best way to think about this in the ancient world, is that there are these spiritual forces, these spirits, that are animating us, and we have to choose which one we're going to follow. And as we can see, James is advocating that we need to follow the way that's given to us by God. And as he said before, this is faith with works. Faith without works is pointless, as James has talked about. So that's what this passage is getting at. It's talking about these two different ways of being Christian. And it's about putting your faith into action. And it's about being motivated by the Spirit of God rather than the Spirit of this world or the devil or demonic forces, however you want to think about that. And so that's what we're getting at with this passage. So as I said, let's dig into the Greek just a little bit and see where that leads us or how that gives us a greater understanding of the passage. So the first thing is here in verse 1, the translator says, those conflicts and disputes among you. So conflicts and disputes gives the impression that they aren't that serious. After all, we have conflicts and disputes in our workplace. And life is just full of conflicts and disputes. We have them in our workplace. We have them with our family members. We have them with our neighbors. We have them with other church brothers and sisters. And we learn how to resolve those. We learn how to live with them. And we think of conflict managers who come and help us resolve these sorts of disputes. So conflicts and disputes, while not ideal and 
perhaps they end up in an arguing match, they aren't as serious as the Greek that's used here. So if I were to tran translate this directly from the Greek, it would sound something like this. From where come wars and from where come fights among you? So the word used for conflicts and disputes is actually wars and fights. And this is much more serious, because in wars, you aren't just talking about having a disagreement with a co-worker, and you're not talking about uh, arguing with your spouse. You're talking about something that could have serious damage, because in a war, people can get maimed. They can lose their arms, they can lose their legs, they can get PTSD, or if the worst happens, someone could lose their life. Wars are not pleasant experiences. And so if we think of wars and fights, rather than conflicts and disputes, we get a better sense of the seriousness that James is talking about here. There are wars and fights among you. And perhaps that would be a better way of thinking about this, because the spiritual life is about life and death. And that's where wars and fights come in. There are matters of life and death, especially for the soldiers. Now, I can hear you protesting already, especially if you're someone who memorized uh, this passage in the New Revised Standard Version. You may be saying, ah, oh, but James does use the word war here. And this is what's very interesting about the translator's choice of words. So he begins by talking about conflicts and disputes. When in the Greek, it talks about wars and fights. And then he goes on to say, these conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? So you may say, well, maybe he didn't use the word war for conflicts and disputes, but he uses the word war here. Well, I hate to say it, but in the Greek, there's a different word used. It's true that, he, that James uses the word war in the beginning, but here where the translator uses the word war, the Greek is stratevome, which means to serve as a soldier, literally. And soldiers obviously fight. To be a soldier is to someone who, who goes into war and fights. And I don't know how you would actually translate this into English, because we don't have a word relating to fighting as a soldier. Maybe you could try doing something like, do they not come from your cravings that are like soldiers at war within you? Something like that, perhaps, you could translate it as. So it's very interesting to look at the translator's use of words here. So where wars and fights actually appear in the Greek text, the translator has chosen to use conflicts and disputes. And where the word is soldiers at war, or soldiers fighting, the translator just goes ahead and translates that as war. But the idea, however you translate that, is that there are these two animating forces within you that are in grave conflict. And as I said, this is the idea of the Spirit of God versus the Spirit of the world, or following God's commands, or following the ways of the world. And so these are at war among you. So James continues, and this is verse 2. You want something, and you do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something, and you cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. So here, I'm sure all of you are saying, hey, he's drawing on the Ten Commandments, and you'd be absolutely correct. The idea here is that James is drawing on the Ten Commandments, or those commandments should come to your mind as you hear these verses. But again, what's interesting is the way the translators have chosen to translate this. So he says, you want something, and you do not have it, so you commit murder. 
So the word for wanting something here is epithemeo. And epithemeo means desire, literally is what it means, to set your heart upon something, to covet it, to desire it, to lust after it. And that's the exact word that's used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, what we call the Subtuagent, which means 70, because we believe that there were 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew into Greek. And so if you were to turn to Exodus 20 and look at verse 17, you would see there it says, do not desire or covet the wife of your neighbor. Do not desire or covet the house of your neighbor. That's the word we think of. And usually, as I think about it, the word for do not covet is covet. So it's interesting that the translators chose to say, do you want something, rather than using the word covet to try to draw us even more closer into the Ten Commandments. So if I were translating this, I would say, do you covet something and do not have it, so you commit murder. So right there, you've broken two commandments, coveting and murdering. But then the translators go on and they say, and you covet something and cannot obtain it. Now, interestingly, the word they've translated as covet is a different Greek word. This is zilo. And this word is not used in the Ten Commandments. This word means jealousy uh, or to be zealous. This is where we get our English word zealous, zilo. And it also has the idea of covet, but it has this warmth feeling. It comes from heat and fire or envy, to be jealous over something. So I would translate it, are jealous about something and you cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. And again, we have the word for fights and wars. So we should be thinking about the Ten Commandments, but as we see, the translation is a little misleading, or at least I think it's inconsistent compared to how we would normally translate the Ten Commandments. And I also want to point out that the word for desire here, epithemeo, is a word that the church fathers use a lot. And the idea is, is that there are passions or desires that act on us that we need to overcome. And this is why Orthodox Christians fast. So fasting is the idea that we try to control the desire of hunger. And if we can control hunger rather than letting hunger control us, then we can take what we learned into other aspects of our lives, and we can get control over the other desires, repithimeo, within our life, such as anger, or lust, or jealousy, or these sorts of things, whatever it is that you struggle with in your spiritual life. This orthodox idea of fasting and conquering your passions or your desires can go all the way back here to James. Now, it can also go back to St. Paul. And so let me read something to you that St. Paul wrote in Galatians. This is Galatians 5, starting with verse 16. And he says, Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. And there's the word for desire. It's the same word in Greek. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit, and what the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh for these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not subject to the law. And then Paul gets into a discussion about the law. But it's the same idea. Remember, one of our theses is that James is completely within the Pauline school, and that if you 
correctly understand what James is saying, and you correctly understand what Paul is saying, you'll see that they're on the same page. And I think this is a perfect example of that. So here we got James talking about these warring desires within us, or these warring competitions within us. And it's the same thing that Paul is talking about, whether it's the desires of the flesh, or it's the desires of the Spirit. James and Paul are on the same page. It's this split road, this fork in the road, and you have to choose which one you're going to go down. So, if we continue on with our in-depth look at this epistle, he goes on to say, You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive, because you ask wrongly, in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. So here you're probably thinking about Jesus and what he says in the Gospel of Luke. Knock and the door will be opened, ask and you shall receive. And it's the same idea here, that it's not a prosperity gospel. Because neither Jesus in Luke nor James here is talking about asking and getting whatever you want. The prosperity gospel, for those who don't know, is the idea that if you are blessed by God, or living a godly lifestyle, you will be materially blessed. You have the nice car, the big house, a lot of money, the good job, the beautiful wife, the good kids, all those sorts of things. And this is called the prosperity gospel. And there are a lot of churches that are teaching this, but this is contrary to what Jesus and James are saying here. They're not talking about that sort of thing. If that's what you're asking for, for material blessings from God, then you've reduced God to a genie. And all you're doing is using prayer as a magical lamp, and you're rubbing it trying to get what you want. And James says, if you're doing that, you're only doing it in order to satisfy your own pleasures, stroke your own ego. And this is not the way of God. James is making this very clear. The prosperity gospel is a sin. It's a heresy. Do not believe those who are preaching it, because it's contrary to Scripture. It's contrary to the way of God. James goes on to call those who are asking in order to get things to satisfy the pleasures. He says, adulterers, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And adulterers is correct. So again, here we have another reference to the Ten Commandments, obviously. You should not covet, you should not murder, and you should not commit adultery. But adultery also has a bigger meaning. So in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, adultery was when people were unfaithful to God. So the idea is that God is married to Israel. Or if you want to speak in New Testament terms, Christ is married to the church. And during Holy Week, in the Orthodox Church, we have the bridegroom services, and we have the famous bridegroom hymn, which is just beautiful. I just love it. I can't wait to sing it this year. But the idea is, is that somehow God and Israel, or Christ and the Church, are wedded together. And of course, weddings come with a commitment. You are expected to be loyal or faithful to your spouse. And if you aren't, you are an adulterer. Or when the prophets say that Israel has committed adultery, it means that they haven't been following God. They haven't been loyal to him. They've been going after other gods, and they've been disobeying God's commandments. And so he calls them adulterers. And it's the same thing here. James is saying, if you aren't obeying the statutes of God, if you followed the way of the world, then you're an adulterer. You have not been loyal to God. Or maybe if you want to put it in a modern translation, your faith has not been in Jesus Christ, and so you're an adulterer, and your friendship is with the world rather than with God. These two sides, these two 
opposing forces are at war with each other. So he goes on. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now there's some debate on whether God yearns jealousy for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us in a negative way or in a positive way. So here, in the New Revised Standard Version, what I've just read to you, it's stated in a positive way. God yearns jealousy for the Spirit He has made to dwell in us. In other words, He has given us the Spirit so that we know right from wrong. We know the correct way to walk the way. And for whatever reason, we aren't listening to that Spirit. And so God is yearning jealously for that Spirit, for us to obey that Spirit. And that would be translating the verse in a positive way. But you could also translate it in a negative way. And that would be the way the New English translation words it. And that is this way. The spirit that God caused to live within us has an envious yearning. In other words, God has animated us with some sort of free will, and it's going after the wrong things. And that would be translating the verse in the negative way. The Greek is not clear. It could be translated either way. You have to look at context and decide what you want. And I'll let my hearers decide which way they think is the best. I just wanted to mention that to everyone. Then verse 6 continues. But he gives all the more grace. Therefore it says, quote, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here we have an Old Testament quote. And scholars argue exactly where this quote comes from. Nowhere else in Scripture do we have a quote exactly like this. It's very possible it comes from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, which says, Towards the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he shows favor. Now, some scholars think James is basically summarizing Proverbs in this case, and he didn't get quite right, but he's getting the main idea across, which is very possible. The other option is that James is quoting something that we no longer have access to, something that has disappeared to history, a book that we don't have. And that also is very possible. But whatever the case may be, I think it's very clear what James means. God opposes the proud, those who follow the ways of the world to boost themselves up, uh, those who are more interested in material goods and wealth than in godly ways. God opposes them and gives grace to the humble. And he goes on to explain what he means by humble. He goes, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now, devil here in Greek is the word diavolos. And diavolos literally means the one who divides. That's what the word literally means in Greek. If you don't translate it as a name, the devil, and you translate the meaning, it means the one who divides. And it makes sense here, because James is talking about the divide between these two different ways. And if you follow the way of the world, you've been divided or set apart or broken apart from God and God's ways. And so I think it's very appropriate to talk about the diavolos here. And this is versus like demons or something like that. So you could say, resist the one who divides and he will flee from you. That would be a perfectly acceptable translation. Then he continues, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
And I think it's interesting, purify your hearts has to do with this spiritual matter. Now, many of you may be thinking about Jeremiah 31, 31, where he talks about God will write a new covenant and put it in our hearts, and this will be a circumcision of the heart versus a circumcision of the flesh. In other words, the heart is a matter of how you act, how you walk the way. So he's asking us to purify our hearts. In other words, live a Christian lifestyle the way that God has shown you, and don't worry about the way of the world. So purify your hearts, you double-minded. And that, of course, is an insult, talking about people who are split between the way of the world and God's way. Then he continues, Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And this goes back to that quote above, that God gives grace to the humble. And notice how God's way is upside down compared to the world's way. So, for example, we see Christ as a king, as our Savior, precisely through his crucifixion, rather than on a throne or with a white stallion. So, as we've seen here in James, we've seen that God asks us to honor the poor rather than the rich. He asks us to humble ourselves rather than be boastful and prideful. And it's just upside down compared to the ways of the world. But the important thing here is we are to humble ourselves, and it's God who exalts us. We don't exalt ourselves, because that would be prideful. It's God who exalts, and that's the key here. God exalts us when we humble ourselves and obey God and walk His way, rather than the way of the world. So we'll end there, and we'll pick up again with verse 11 of chapter 4 next week. May God bless you all.